Hey everybody, I'm Nicole Delahuse, AKA Nicole Fancy Last Name. I'm a boy mom times two, a wife, and an attorney, but not necessarily in that order. And this is Hella Smart Mothers. So what's a Hella Smart Mother, you ask? A Hella Smart Mother is a mom who wants to be the best version of herself, for herself and her family, but most importantly, for herself. This show was created to be the virtual mom squad for Hella Smart Mothers all over the world to talk about the down and dirty of being a millennial mom in this new frontier of modern day motherhood. So let's get it in. Hella Smart Mothers starts now. Hey, mothers and lovers. Today, Hella Smart Mothers is bringing you a two-part special episode to honor the life of fellow Hella Smart Mother, LaShonda Wally's son, who passed away as a result of suicide. In part one of this episode, LaShonda and I discuss how we as parents can affect our children's mental health. LaShonda shares memories of sincere and we discuss cultural taboos about mental illness. Lastly, we discuss the gene sight test, which is linked in the show notes. Please stay tuned for part one of Surviving Suicide with LaShonda Wally after the break. And again, yeah, just kind of keep going where we were, you know, when, when something like suicide hits you personally, it's it's a completely different thing. Like you said, we we often know of family members, older family. You know, I had a, a great uncle who died by suicide before um, I was ever born. And they, my family actually, surprisingly, um, was pretty open about it because I know that often it's kind of a, you know, a taboo subject. People usually don't specifically say such and such died by suicide. And I want to make a very big distinction here in the terms that people use when we talk about suicide as opposed to, quote unquote, committed suicide versus died by suicide. I think that's a big delineation and an important distinction. Yes, it is. I think a a lot of the um, advocacy groups and stuff that are focused on suicide and suicide prevention, that is, they believe that that is one of the first steps to destigmatizing suicide and mental health issues is to not say committed because we wouldn't say someone committed cancer. Right. Right. <laughs> or, that sounds you know, crazy. It sounds absolutely crazy. So the word committed in and of itself says that the person did something. Right. And you know, we link it to a criminal context, like they committed a crime. And so to take it out of and say you can still say the person killed themselves, the person died by suicide. They, you know, there's still so many other ways to say it and call it for what it is without attaching this word that automatically makes it seem like it is wrong. Right. That it's wrong and intentional, like a, like a, a, a right. A, right. Like, that it's wrong yeah. and intentional. And, and, and what I said, you know, when my son first passed away and as we're coming up soon on the year anniversary, which will be mm-hmm. July 12th and everyone else, well, not everyone, but a lot of people wanted to know, was there a note? Why? Um, those sorts of questions. Can we go through the phone? Can we go through the computers? All of these things. And everyone's looking for the why. 
And I think I had that feeling for about two weeks. Mm-hmm. Even though I had his phone, I wouldn't go through it. But I was like, I, I do want to know. And then at some point I said, no, I don't want to know. Two reasons. One, I am in my rational mind going to look at something and try to make sense of something that is either written by someone or or said by someone who is in the depths of depression and mental illness. And so their thoughts are not rational when someone gets to that point. So looking at it won't make sense to me. Right. Um, And the, the other thing was we all, you know, you think of all the things you may say to your friends or to your family, or you may write to yourself if you're a person at journals and stuff. You say those things and you never intend for anyone else to hear them. Exactly. Than, you know, so it was like the person is not here now, but there are some things that I don't want to know. Sure. I don't want to know everything because it won't answer the question because ultimately if you're the family and friend that is left, there is no answer that can be given where you're going to say, aha, okay, now that makes sense to me. There's, that, there's no such thing. Nothing makes be com- satisfactory. Right. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. So let's just back up a little bit. And, you know, I want to, to come at this at an angle for both telling your story and then for also giving some, you know, advice to other parents as to what to look for, what to look out for when, when you first started noticing changes in Sincere and what some of those changes were. So how old was Sincere when you first started noticing a change in his disposition? If I look back, I will say it was probably about 13 or 14. And initially, I discounted that as just we had recently moved. He was in a new school. And, you know, just kind of like teenage sure. stuff and thinking that this kid that went from being a very friendly, loving, outgoing child that is now being a little bit more secluded, you know, not hanging out with family or friends and not wanting to participate in stuff. I just figure, you know, when you get to be 13, 14 and up, like hanging out with your parents isn't cool. Hanging out right. with your siblings and they're you know, 10 and 12 years older than you and they're doing things that you can't do like that. Those things aren't fun. So I kind of wrote it off as that. And when I reflect back on it now, I think that was the beginning because in addition to like moving and changing schools and stuff, he was also what you would say was a chubby kid. He was always, you know, bigger than all the other kids. And you wouldn't know that if you saw the later pictures because he went from weighing like 150 pounds at 12 to weighing 130 pounds at 17 and wow slender and it, it we didn't do anything it just came off and that's you know what his doctors would say don't worry about it he will eventually shoot up and sure enough he did <laughs> but you know kids are cruel and right. even family members like you know his little cousins and stuff would be like oh you're fat so he was the chubby kid who wore glasses and had braces Oh yeah, um, <laughs> and so I think that was kind of the start, and then, but even then, I again, those were symptoms of a change in attitude and mood 
that in hindsight I should have paid attention to, or at least asked, like not make the assumption that this is just teenage angst. Because sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. Um, but it's better to have asked the question than to make the assumption and be wrong. Right. No, totally agree with that. So at around 13 or 14, and so just to back up a little bit, you said that you guys had just moved, he had moved schools, and so there was a lot of change going on. Right. Were you and his dad um, together when he was growing up? We were together until he was about five. Okay. Um, and so, and that, and that's another thing I think also contributed to the change in the move was he went from seeing his father every single day to seeing him once a year because his father moved um, oh, out wow. of state. And then Sincere was dead in the middle of kids. I had an older son who was 10 years older than Sincere. And then Sincere had two other siblings that were his father's children that were nine and eight years older than him. And then his father had three more kids that are all 10 years younger than Sincere. Oh, um, wow. So, so he, he was stuck right alone. in the middle. Yeah. So he had no, no peers. <laughs> <laughs> no peers. Although he had, you know, six siblings, he had no one that was in the same age bracket. Like nowhere even near it. Yeah. No, no. And so then and there was that watching, you know, his father parent his siblings in a way right. that he just wasn't being parented. Um, and how old was he when he moved to a different state? He was, since there was five, he was five, five. about turn six when his father moved. And so we did not have a good relationship. And what happens far too frequently is, you know, when the parents break up, one decides, well, you know what, I don't care for the other. And so I just won't deal with the child. Right. Yep. I nope. deal with the parent. Totally know that story. <laughs> right. My uh, my my dad was definitely that dad. The sad thing though is we lived in the same small city. So like we lived in, you know, we're I'm from Waco, so we lived in a small city, and every everybody knows everybody within at least like one or two degrees. Mm. And so, and I look very similar to my dad. <laughs> And so everybody so he, knows that's like Nicole's dad over there, but exactly. Nicole ain't never seeing dad. <laughs> and I don't see him. Or he'll call once a year. Oh yeah, I'm gonna come pick you up. And then I sit by the window for literally like four hours, and he never comes. So like I completely know that heartbreak, and it is it is it's freaking hard to overcome. Yeah, it's and a- I think we minimize that too. We minimize how much our adult actions affect our children and we're just like oh well you know you'll get over it you'll learn to deal with it you're not the only kid whose dad isn't present or something like that but everybody's different and what I can with 100% certainty say that that still maybe not majorly but to some extent that that still affects me like that 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 level of me having to kind of shut my feelings off and compartmentalize like that relationship with my dad. Right. Absolutely. Like we, again, we don't know, you know, we assume that everyone will just deal with whatever comes and we will to a certain extent, but how we deal with it is going to be very different. And for sincere, I think it was to shut down. And even 
how it continued to manifest was once we were all aware of Sincere's mental illness and, and how he was struggling, it was when his father came around, he just, you know, didn't show that part, you know, and I said, the strange thing is I take some sort of solace in knowing that he felt comfortable enough with me and his stepdad that we got to see him at his worst, meaning when he was moody and just, uh, for lack of a better word, being an ass, partially because he's a teenager and partially (laughs) because depression and mental illness and things like that. It it can make you mean because it's isolating. But like that he was willing to show that to us also meant that in some way he trusted us in a way that he did not trust other people because his father didn't see that side. His father would see the fake smile and, you know, his friends didn't know that he was suffering because they saw happiness, you know? So to me, although clearly it was not pleasant to experience, I was glad that he trusted us enough to to be that vulnerable. Right. To show his true self. I had a uh, a guest on my show, I think two episodes ago, and she also suffered from severe depression as a teenager and had suicidal ideations as a teenager. And that was one of the things that she said was that her her mother passed away when she was 14 years old. And so that traumatic experience kind of just set her, you know, into a spiral into the like deeper into the depression that was probably already there. And she said that she had to go live with her father and her stepmother. And she knew that her stepmother didn't want her there. And so to, to, to be, you know, well-received, she said she put on the mask every single day, put on a smile, continued to try to, you know, strive in school and athletics and all those things to make sure that her dad would, would want her, you know, and that her stepmother would want her. But inside, she, you know, she literally wanted to die. And so the fact that, you know, you're right, the fact that he was comfortable and, and, and trusting enough in you guys to exhibit the true you that speaks volumes to your relationship. And that's, you know, that's, if nothing more, is beautiful. So... You said that you started, you, you think that the, the depression probably set in at around about that 13 to 14 um, years. Mm-hmm. What did you guys do to get to a diagnosis? How that came about is literally one day, um, Sincere and I were at a facility in which you had to like go through the metal detectors and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he was accompanying me. and he had to take his jacket off. And when he took his jacket off, there was like a glass window in front of where we were standing and people are passing through. And I'm like maybe two people behind him taking my stuff off. And when he took his jacket off, he had on a short sleeve shirt and I caught a glimpse. Couldn't have been any more than like two or three seconds. And I caught a glimpse of his arm in the glass. And I saw what I knew immediately was marks of cutting. And I didn't say anything right then to him because we were out in the public. And I called, I called my husband 
And I said, I think Sincere is cutting and check his room. And my husband um, did, he checked his room and found razor blades and stuff in the trash can in my son's room. So when we got home that night, um, we confronted him and asked him, like, are you cutting? Like, I saw your arm. And he said, yeah. And I said, why? And he said, I don't know why. It's like, well, do you want to stop? I don't know. I don't know why I'm doing it. I don't know if I want to stop. I don't have a reason not to stop. And I said, well, are you willing to go and talk to someone? Because, you know, at first, <laughs> the first thing that comes to your mind is like, is suicide, even though right. cutting and suicide um, are not synonymous with one another. A lot of people cut and they never have suicidal ideation. But so I said, well, we are going to, you know, get you to a therapist. And this happened on a Sunday. And on Tuesday, we had him at a therapist. That's fantastic. You acted on it so um, quickly. And, and for, you know, a lot of people that, you know, don't know if you're employed, hopefully you're employed. I went initially through my employee assistance program. Mm -hmm. That's how we were able to get someone quickly is um, using that program, which gave us like six or eight sessions for free mm -hmm. with the therapist. And so when we found out that was like in February. Um, and so, you know, we're taking him to the therapist. And, and I will say, I think my husband and I handled it well in that, like, we didn't freak out. We right. didn't do the, how could you or, or the blame? It was just a really calm conversation. But it also made me think, well, damn, that's why he's walking around here in long sleeves. All um, the time. All the time or a sweatshirt. But I just thought maybe the basement's cold because that's where he hung out and played his video games. Again, another sign that in and of itself, you probably wouldn't pay attention to. Right. But I noticed it because when I when I did find out, I was like, oh, I, I, I remembered noticing he was wearing a sweatshirt all the time. But just thinking he's cold. Like I could have asked and, and yet I didn't. And, and the marks were very visible on his arm if his shirt was off. Um, and I'm sure there had to been some time in which maybe I ran into him as he was coming out of the bathroom, out of the shower, or, you know, downstairs getting water and he wasn't covered. And I just wasn't paying attention but who would know, know like who would right who i didn't know there was something to pay attention yeah, to. yeah <laughs> like who would think to do that yeah like that's not even something that unless right. you had some indication you would not know so you would not know but uh, you know and i will say stupidly the the first thing or one of the first things that came to my mind i was like cutting this ain't what black people do <laughs> <laughs> you know I don't do this shit <laughs> you know like listen that is such a common thing like anything honestly dealing with mental health and mental health disorders that is generally the hair trigger you know reaction and thought is black people don't do that and it's yes, like that's what I thought and I said <laughs> I'm ashamed to say but I said damn it Segre integration has struck again. <laughs> <laughs> what? And then, I, and then my next thought, equally ridiculous, was what freaking white chick did he get this shit from? Because one just doesn't wake up one day and decide you want to, like, take a razor blade to your arm. Where did this come from? And, you he know, but say, that... Did he ever say no. like, why he chose 
He never did. Or at least he never said to us. Okay. He never did. And the funny thing is, so that happened, I would say, within 18 months of when we found out he was cutting, he was diagnosed. Within 18 months, he had died by suicide. Wow. And so that... Lashonda, I didn't realize it was that like close in proximity. It was, but then you also think, you know, part of me, and I'm like jumping all over the place, part of no, me, no. when it happened, I was like, damn, where were my years of struggle? Like, you know, because I look at, I, my brother suffers from depression and schizophrenia and psychosis, and he was first diagnosed back when I was 19, and mm-hmm. I'm 40, about to be 41. You know, and, and, and watching him and his struggle and knowing other people who've had mental illness, I just, one, I never thought necessarily about suicide, but I also thought like, this is just, you know, sort of a multi-year lifetime sort of thing we're going to deal with. Right. I never in a million years, and I guess so many people, I never in a million years thought that it would end and definitely not so quickly. And so there was a part of me that's like, I missed some years. You cut me short. <laughs> I mean, literally and figuratively, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But so, you know, when we found out, we did everything that we could think of. We did we did a psycho psychosocial assessment so that they could figure out exactly what it was and what mm-hmm. would be the best sort of treatment for him. Like, would it be like DBT or um, which is like behavioral therapy or would it be some sort of cognitive therapy so there's so many different methods would it be like EMR which is the eye movement therapy um, so many things that were out there and then after about two or three weeks of therapy his therapist called us up and said look I'm not getting through he said it says if there is a fog that I just that he just can't see his way through, and I don't think we can continue in this without him being medicated. Like we need the medication to clear the fog so that I can make some headway. And so, what diagnosis at that point had they given him? Was it t- depression? Just depression? Just depression at that point. It was just depression. And then once we were moving towards getting medication, because the other flip side to mental health, particularly mental health things involving children is the weights are ridiculous. And we had insurance, both my husband and I, and we still <laughs> were on like a three month wait list to Yeesh. see a therapist. And so, you know, and the only way to speed that up is for someone to be hospitalized. And that wasn't our intention, but what ended up happening was on one of his visits to his therapist. His therapist said, I believe he is imminently, acutely suicidal. Meaning, you know, he's it at could happen any day. Right. And you need to take him to the hospital. And so we said, well, which hospital? You know, um, we want to go to one that has like a children's psychiatric wing. So we mm-hmm. drive like nearly an hour away to go to this hospital, sit there for mm, a full day. From the night into the next day, for them to tell us that they don't take our insurance, but like, oh, oh are you we don't kidding take me? Insurance. But your son, if you take him home, may likely kill himself. So 
you can just sit here until we figure out where we can send you who will take your insurance. Oh, and my goodness. You, or you can go home against medical advice if you wanted to. And I was like, you know, that, that experience was such a, oh, it was humiliating. It was frustrating because, you know, you want to do what is best for your kid and you want to listen to the doctors as so many of us when we're going through medical things. We're at the mercy of people that we assume know what they're talking about of course, and know what they're doing. And I just thought, this is the worst freaking thing. You, you say, hey, you have thoughts of killing yourself. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to lock you in a room, take your clothes, uh, you know, put you in one of these thin hospital gowns. There's going to be no TV. There's nothing on the wall. There's nothing to occupy your mind. So while wow. you're having all these thoughts, we're going to put you in a room and let you have some more all by yourself. And I thought, who came up with this stupid ass plan? Yeah, that's horrible. So I have to ask this question because it's always on my mind when I hear these type of stories. Do you think it had anything to do with your race? Like the cavalierness of, sorry, we don't take your insurance and he's probably going to kill himself. But I mean, you just need to figure it out. Like, no, honestly, I don't. I, I think that they're just, I think there's a lack of compassion to, in some respect. But also, you know, in doing that sort of work, I think it is very easy if they get invested in mm -hmm. every single case that walks through the door, that it would be draining and they couldn't do it. So that you does, do kind of have that does make sense. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it like here, here it is and just lay it out. Cold, hard facts. Do with it what you will, because I got a million other patients that I have to deal with sort of thing. So and let me ask you this. Do you think if it had been, you know, a physical ailment, like, you know, he was suffering from a heart attack or a stroke or something like that? Oh, we don't take your insurance. Sorry. You know, I guess what I'm getting so at is it's different there because then they have a if you are presenting at the hospital and it's a you know public hospital or something like that, mm -hmm. you're presenting at the hospital and you could literally die and you're you're in like which tells you the the stigma and the distinction right there because we'll say you're having a heart attack that we need to deal with right now you're having suicidal thoughts those are imminent it could happen anytime but a hospital isn't there to fix that people go to the hospital basically so that they can secure you and prevent you from killing yourself it wow. is not to treat you is just to put time. And, and, and that is what everyone that I've spoken to, the professionals say, really, the thing that stops one from another is time. Because suicidal thoughts, many people have them. And some folks act on them and some don't. But the more time you can put between the thought and the ability to carry it out, the less likely it will occur. So if we can just take you out of your environment so that you no longer have access to anything to which you can kill yourself with, then we can maybe get you over that episode. God, but does and that not sound crazy as hell to you? I mean, the brain is an organ. Just, <laughs> you, I mean, seriously, seriously, the brain is an organ, just like the heart 
or the kidneys or the liver or or whatever and if you go to a hospital and and they they determine you're in renal failure they're not going to say let's just sit it out and see what happens they're going to get you hooked up to dialysis and try to you know reverse course and 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 make you better like the fact that the way our healthcare system is set up is that somehow the brain, the most important organ, the brain that func- that you know sends messages to every single part of your body, is not viewed as I don't know important. I don't even know what the proper word is as another organ. Like that is mind blowing to me. But the other part of that is this isn't something like if if you. If you have a gunshot wound, we can go and immediately treat that and fix it. Like we can take the bullet out, we can sew you up and then wait for your body to heal. With mental health, there is no, there's nothing that we can do right then that will make that stop. It is a, you know, a long process first of just getting you the right diagnosis, figuring out the right medications. Right, but so is like renal failure. I mean, and and I used I used I used example of renal failure as opposed to something that is acute, like a like a gunshot wound or you know something that is renal failure is imminent if not treated, but it's still a long term prognosis in terms of how you treat it. But it's treated, you know, you know, right. And they put you on meds and all of that sort of stuff. A hospital is going to give you a certain level of medication, but that right. is not going to account for how you react because many of these psychiatric medications, when you initially take them, they all come with a warning that right. it is likely to make you more suicidal. Ugh. So, you know, there is that watch phase that needs to occur. And let's be honest, you can barely get individual treatment when you go to your physician with an appointment. Right. Now you're going to a physician that has, let's say, 20 patients Mm -hmm. and they have however many minutes they spend talking to every single patient. Are they really assessing? Do they even have the capability to do it or are they triaging? I think psychiatric hospitals, by and large, are triage. They are not treatment facilities. They're just really to get you over the hump so that we can get you out and you can go someplace else that will treat you. So when he was released, he stayed inpatient for five days. When he was released from uh, the hospital, he did intensive outpatient every day for six weeks. Um, which was three hours long. And then he stepped down to twice a week, every week, and so on. But again, you need to find a facility that will take your insurance. You need to find a place that has openings. And then you still need, even with that, will your kid or whoever it is, will they connect with the therapist? So great you found a therapist you got a psychiatrist you have all these things but does your person connect with them because if it they don't it doesn't work sure and how did sincere like how in in that intensive therapy did you notice a difference i did i did at first 
you know, he didn't want to go because it was group therapy and it was um, all geared towards adolescents. There was only other kids in there. And he didn't want to go. And he thought it was stupid. And I was like, well, you're going. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And then towards the end, when they were stepping them down and phasing them out, he was sad to leave. Even though, you know, they were giving us reports how he wasn't like always participating and he was more mm-hmm. of a listener mm-hmm. than, you know, the, the kid in there spilling out his heart and soul. It, it became a routine. And I think that was like really helpful for him. And also important because he got to sit in a room with other kids that seemingly are like him in some respect and I'm not alone. Like this, I'm not this weird, you know, mutant. Right. These these feelings, other people, my age have them other people who to the outside world may seem like everything is great are suffering this as well. And I also think it gave them perspective. I think it gave all the kids perspective that there's someone that's doing better than you. And there's someone that is doing worse than you. And at that point, was he on any medication? He was. He started off on, oh, it begins begins with a P. I I can't remember what the name of it was. He started off on um, one medication, which was the medication that they released him from the hospital with. And then he changed to, oh, what are their medications? Um, Then he changed to another medication uh, because he said he didn't feel like that one was really working. And what we ended up doing was a test called GeneSight, G-N-E-Sight. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't know about this. So this test basically tests to see how your body will react to particular medications. Like, oh, wow. And it will, and they print, you get a printout. And it's not just psychiatric medications and things like that, but it also will say, you know, like how you will, react to certain opioids and things like that, common medications. And so they give you a category of these things you will have a really bad reaction to, likely to have a bad reaction. These things you're likely not to have any reaction, you know, like side effect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and here's like your red category, stay away from yellow category. We need to do heavy monitoring. Green category, these are the ones that are best for you. And it also will tell you, you know, for you, and it's based on what your genetic makeup is. So no two printouts are going to be the same. Right. Um, And it will say for you, maybe you need a higher dosage because of how your body is going to absorb this medication. Where does it, where does someone get that test? Is that one of those like 23 and me, you can just order it. Is that something that like a doctor has to order? So the doctor has to administer it because it's a a blood test and they take your blood and then they send it off to this organization. Um, and you can go onto the gene site website and they will tell you the doctors who are authorized okay. in your area to actually give the test because not every doctor can do it. Okay. And what's also great about it is, although it's ridiculously expensive, I think it costs like $6,000, but even if you have no insurance, you can still take it. The most you will pay out of pocket is like $325. Oh, wow. And that is if you have over, if you make more than $100,000 a year. Oh, wow. So do the, is it is it because it's kind of a, in testing phase? And so 
they no no it's not intent they just want it to be widely when it's used they want it to be used it's widely available to people and i've recommended that to so many people because what i know like my brother has gone through and some other you know friends and stuff i know one of the hardest things about dealing with mental health is trying to get the medication right and so having this tool that helps you know narrow down the medication and and what's going to work and so you don't have to go through you know months or years of trial and error is awesome because the other thing about the psychiatric medications is you can't just like stop and say, well, you know what, today I'm taking aspirin and tomorrow I'm taking ibuprofen. You still have to stair step down off of one as you're building up the other. And again, most of these medications, one of the side effects when you start taking them is increased depression, increased suicidal ideations and all the things you're trying to get rid of. And so having that was great. Like it's, I think there was maybe like a 10 page document that told you what medications would work well. The other thing that the test did also was it told us that he was genetically predisposed to depression and that he got that from both sides of his DNA. So it wasn't wow. so it, pin, it, pinpoints, <laughs> it pinpoints down to, to, to like that, like it, it yeah. pinpoints it down. That is incredible in it. Is it something that, you know, you have to have, like, a reason to get the test ordered? Or is that something that someone can just kind of preemptively do? Um, I don't know about that. I, I think because you have to go through the physician, mm-hmm. it's probably going to be up to the doctor. Okay. That says that you know, we're giving it to you. I think it's primarily used for psychiatric medications, but it does also touch on other medications. So I don't know why you know maybe another doctor wouldn't use it as a tool to diagnose so it's, it's just one other tool that is available to use. that's so- amazing I've, I've honestly i've never heard of that my mom's a nurse and and she actually worked in psychiatric hospitals when i was growing up and i've i've never heard of that so that's that's a really good piece of information to have yes and if you don't have any money you can still get it and you will not get a bill until they have fought with your insurance company. I didn't get a bill until like a year after the test because they were fighting with my insurance company to try to get my insurance company to pay whatever it is that they could get them to pay. And then I got the final bill, which again is never going to be more than three hundred and I believe twenty five dollars. And you can pay it on payments if you need it to. That is pretty incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Mothers, lovers, thank you so much for listening to part one of this very important topic. Please check out part two to hear the conclusion of my discussion with LaShonda as we discuss empathy in children, destigmatizing mental illness, and how LaShonda is turning her tragedy into community activism. If you or someone you know is suffering from mental illness or having suicidal thoughts, please contact the National Alliance of Mental Health, also known as NAMI, at 1-800-950-6264 or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK or 1-800-273-8255. Stay tuned for part two of this episode.